Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. Now, this is the 60th episode, which means we are at another international episode. Uh, We are not going to head too far from my home state of Minnesota. We're going to head a little north to the great country of Canada, and that is because Canada is the next most popular country with the podcast. But before we start the episode let's get through the business here if you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to please like and follow the true blue crime productions facebook page more information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com and i did just spend a half a day updating the website so it is all functional now all the different uh, locations uh, where you can listen to the podcast uh, they are all updated on there at least the majority of them are there uh, there's information about crime con 2023 on the website uh, a couple of the reviews that i've received i uh, posted on the website as well as uh, a photo of the host and the producer uh, on the website so go ahead and check that out at www.truebluecrimeproductions.com and if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon. There is a link to the Patreon site on the website. Uh, any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. I do have plans to do a unsolved version of the podcast and potentially a specialized edition of the podcast covering a a specific topic as well so i'd like to do that i just going to continue to focus on the solved podcast for now but eventually if i can i'm going to branch off and for no cost whatsoever please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on thanks so much without any further ado let's dive into this episode of true blue crime In 1492, Christopher Columbus did not set out to find a new world. He was trying to find a route to the Indies by sailing west from Europe. How much about the land masses of North and South America were known to the explorers of the 1400s is still debated today, but while his expedition did expose a new part of the world to mainstream Europe, it failed in its effort to find a faster route to the Indies. Explorers in the early 1600s were faced with a new reality. The land masses of North and South America were giant barriers to trade with the East Indies, and after a hundred years of searching, there was still no direct route between Western Europe and East Asia. Centuries before the Panama Canal was built, trade still had to go around the southern tip of South America and then all the way across the South Pacific. It was not the shortcut merchants had hoped for. Explorers turned to the frozen North to find what became known as the fabled Northwest Passage. If sailors could find a way to leave Western Europe and travel across the North Atlantic and through the Arctic Ocean, they could emerge on the east side of Russia and cut months off the trade route between West and East. One of these explorers, Henry Hudson, made several attempts to find this legendary corridor. Each time he would sail north through Greenland and then look for safe passage through the Arctic Ocean, but each time he would have to turn back due to ice north of the Arctic Circle. Changing tactics in 1609, he attempted to cross North America via a major river in what is now New York and is known as the Hudson River. In 1610, he tried again, this time sailing north until he reached a major break in the ocean in an area now known as the Hudson Strait. This large waterway led to a gigantic inland sea called Hudson Bay. The expedition believed they had found the path to the west, but eventually became trapped in the ice of the bay in the winter. By spring of 1611, the ship was free of the ice and Hudson wanted to continue west, but his men wanted to return home. They mutinied and forced Hudson, his son, and six men loyal to their captain into a smaller boat and left them behind and sailed back to England. While the men were put on trial, they escaped any real punishment, likely because they had information that led to the further exploration of Hudson Bay. This proved to be highly valuable as the area was further explored and a trade empire for furs and pelts was established. The fate of the man known for some of the most important waterways in North America, his son, and his loyal men were never heard from again. In 2019, two teenagers set out on a different type of expedition in northern Canada. Their crimes would shock the nation and like Hudson's mutinous crews, they hoped to escape Canada via Hudson Bay. This is the story of the Northern Canada killing spree. On July 12, 2019, 19-year-old Cam McLeod 
and 18-year-old Briar Shemelgaskai walked out of a Cabela's sports outfitter store in the city of Nanamio, British Columbia, Canada. The two teenagers were about to embark on a 2,000-mile-long crime spree that would spark one of the largest manhunts in Canadian history. One of the most frustrating aspects of this case is the lack of information regarding the suspects. Either through Canadian privacy laws, a willful attempt to limit information to discourage copycats, or just a complete lack of information about their backgrounds that explains why they did what they did, the bottom line is we know much about what they did, but we know little about who they were and why they did it. What we do know is that the two teens have been friends since elementary school. Briar was said to have a troubled upbringing. His parents divorced in 2005 when he was roughly four, and he was said to have turned to video games and YouTube for socialization. Briar made a lot of friends playing video games online with other gamers who would later tell the media that Briar had an obsession with Nazi history and collected Nazi items. He was said to be quiet on his own, but could be very outspoken if he was within a small group of friends. Friends and family believed he struggled with depression and was in constant emotional pain. Cam, on the other hand, was known to be a quiet but very happy kid. He was also big into video games. He was described as a kind and considerate young man who was always concerned about how other people were feeling. The teens had spent the summers of 2017 and 2018 in the woods around their homes near Vancouver, British Columbia. They liked to dress in camouflage clothing and pretend to be soldiers in a make-believe war. They considered themselves survivalists, but friends and family said they didn't make threats against anyone and were not violent kids. So what they were about to do shocked not only the entire country, but those closest to them. And while their crimes are really the centerpiece of the story, I want to cover their actions in chronological order, and then we can discuss the crimes and those involved at the appropriate times. On July 12, 2019, the two teens left their homes, telling family they were leaving the area to seek work up in the Yukon. They worked at the local Walmart together and complained about the low wages and felt they could make more money in the tough but prop profitable Yukon. And this is a time period 2019. I know the show Gold Rush uh, was really popular at this time. It was kind of the new get rich scheme and whether it's like the crab hunting in Alaska or this this gold hunting up in the Yukon um, or the oil wherever the oil boom is these very difficult dangerous and physically demanding jobs are appealing to uh, teenagers of this age you know they're young adults they're they want to set out and make a life for themselves and if you watch on TV you see these younger kids roughly their age making millions of dollars whether it be um, you know, pulling gold out of the ground or in, is that they're making good money doing things like crab hunting or working on oil rigs or in the oil field so it wouldn't have raised any red flags back in 2019 that these two kids from Canada wanted to go up to the Yukon and find high paying jobs. They were there, the jobs were available, you just you either had to have some knowledge about what you're doing or willing to learn and willing to work really hard in a remote location. The teens drove to a local Cabela's and legally purchased a SKS-style semi-automatic rifle and a box of 20 rounds of 7.62 ammunition before heading north towards the Yukon, as they had told friends and family they were planning on doing. Traveling in Cam's older Dodge Ram pickup with a white camper in the bed, the two teens could cover a large distance while trading off as drivers and could also stop and rest anywhere along the way. By the afternoon of July 14th, the two teens were witnessed on security cameras in Fort Nelson, British Columbia. This is a rural community east of the British Columbia section of the Rocky Mountains, about two hours south of the border with the Yukon. The following morning, July 15th, at 6.20 a.m., a semi-truck driver passed an old conversion van parked on the side of the highway. One of the rear windows appeared to be shot out, and the driver would see what appears to be two bodies in the ditch. He stops and discovers the scene of a brutal double homicide. 
A highway worker who had seen the couple arguing with a man the previous afternoon had been bothered by what they saw and requested a fellow co-worker check on the couple on the morning of the 15th. That worker found the truck driver directing traffic at the horrible scene and a call was made to the RCMP station in Prince George. And this is an extremely remote area. There's a reason why there's, we're going to talk about a lot of people that stop to offer aid to this couple in this conversion van because, again, this is uh, east of the, the Rocky Mountains. It's kind of in the middle of nowhere, like two miles south of the border with U the Yukon. There's not very good or any cell phone coverage in the area, and that's one of the reasons why this truck driver stopped to help direct traffic. Now, I don't know if he had a CB radio capable of calling for help, but it doesn't seem like it. Uh, but cell phones wouldn't have been any good. So my guess is when this highway worker gets there, they have some type of radio that they can reach out to the uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the RCMP, and notify them of this double homicide scene. While waiting for officers and investigators to arrive, a tourist named Charles Ray also arrives at the scene. He had stopped by the van on the previous evening, seeing that the van had broken down, and he offered to help, but was turned away by the van's occupants. Having camped only three kilometers away, he had planned to check on the couple in the morning and was stopped by a road maintenance crew who had set up roadblocks to prevent people from stumbling upon the grisly scene. The area was so remote it would take a major crimes unit over 24 hours to arrive and process the scene. Upon their arrival, they note the bodies belong to 23-year-old Australian Lucas Fowler and his 24-year-old American girlfriend, China Dees. So who are the victims? Lucas Fowler was born and raised in Australia, and like most Australians, he had a love for adventure and travel. China Dees was born and raised in North Carolina, and the two met while Lucas was on a two-year backpacking trip around the world. Now, I do have some experience with this, having uh, spent some of my childhood in Australia and some of my friends uh, from that childhood that I still talk with. Uh, and, and in 2016, I actually went back over there to visit them and, and do kind of an epic journey myself up the east side of Australia from Melbourne up to Brisbane and then into the Great Barrier Reef. And along the way, I met a lot of great people and, and talked with a lot of people and I found out that it's not uncommon for these early 20s uh, Australians to go on these I mean in Australia would be a walkabout but they do it all around the world uh, they, they want to see the world there's this absolute love of travel and adventure that they have so a lot of them do this stuff like this to uh, year backpacking trip or they'll go off and work somewhere in, in a in a country for a couple years just to get that life experience and world experience and you know, China Deese was kind of the one of those Americans that had that Australian like desire for travel and adventure she's over in uh, Croatia and and that this is and the two of them met in that country while Lucas was visiting Croatia as part of his two-year backpacking trip. So they're both very adventurous, uh, said to be very nature-loving, uh, good-spirited kids, and they they fall in love while uh, Lucas is backpacking, and then they kind of maintain this long-distance relationship. However, Lucas had come to the States and was had visited China and her family for the Christmas of 2018 before he left to work on a remote ranch in Canada. And I think this is because it's it's easier, and I may be wrong here, and I'm sure if I am, I'll get some emails from some of my Canadian or Australian listeners, but the Commonwealth countries, the UK, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and there's a whole bunch of other smaller ones, I think it's easier for both travel and work visas and that kind of stuff amongst the Commonwealth countries. So it wouldn't be uncommon for an Australian to visit and work in Canada. And so this is going to get Lucas closer to China, uh, his girlfriend, not the country. 
Uh, this is going to get him closer to uh, his girlfriend, and he's going to be able to work on this ranch, and this is working in the outdoors in a remote area. This is something that Lucas loved. And while working on the ranch, he purchased a 1986 blue Chevy conversion van, and he spent uh, the roughly six months between when he left to work on this ranch and when China's going to come visit him, he had slowly fixed up this Chevy conversion van and made it into a camper van. And the two of them were going to go on this three-week-long Canadian travel adventure. And that's something else that's pretty popular. It was back in 2019. It's still kind of popular is for these early 20-somethings in America or Canada to build their own version of a camper van so they can drive around, see the sights, stop at national parks or parks they can sleep in the back if there's two of them so just like cam and briar they can trade off driving duties so they can get further if they want to each day so all of this is just as a kind of a regular stuff that you're going to see with with early 20s and late teens uh, americans and, and canadians and in this case australians And shortly after setting out on their adventure, the van had mechanical issues, and on July 14th, while traveling the Alaska Highway, the van broke down, and they parked it on the side of the road. Many people, like Charles Ray, stopped to offer help to the young couple. A mechanic named Curtis Broughton stopped by the van around 3.20 in the afternoon, and would later say the couple seemed to have the situation under control. Curtis said Lucas thought the van engine had flooded, and they just needed to give it some time, and they would be on their way. And again, this is 2019, and this is a 1986 Chevy conversion van. So we're talking about a 30-plus-year-old uh, vehicle, and trucks and vans and cars in general, I guess, if they spend their entire lifetime in the northern United States, Michigan, Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota, Wisconsin kind of across that upper midwest belt up into canada the the life of these vehicles they they have a rough life there's a lot of salt is dropped on the roads in the winter to help melt the ice and make the roads safer to drive on and the the negative side effect of that is all that salt gets up into the metal and the workings of the vehicles and they break it down over time so the older a vehicle is, if it hasn't been properly cared for or rebuilt or anything like that, uh, the older a vehicle is and the further north you go, the better chance you're going to have some major issues with it, whether it be mechanical or structural. So even though Lucas had spent six months fixing up this van, the, the demands of driving across Canada, and, and you're talking to the, the mountains, uh, very steep roads that put a lot of strain on engines and strain on the brake systems and everything like that. Um, it's like I said, it's just, it's very likely this van was going to break down. And it did seem like Lucas had some idea what he was doing. I mean, he had fixed up the van to get it ready for this trip. And everybody that stopped to help seemed to think that Lucas had the situation under control. And maybe it was something that was too difficult for Lucas to fix, but he just didn't want to bother anybody with, you know, having them stop their, whatever they were doing and help them. And the last known man to see the couple alive drove by the van around 1040 and saw them talking to another man. The vehicle was undamaged at this time, and this man would later be ruled out as a suspect but never identified. Sometime after 10.40 p.m. and before 6.20 a.m., the couple was murdered via gunfire from a rifle using 7.62 ammunition. The couple would not initially be identified as they had no ID on them at the time they were killed. So remember I mentioned how remote this location was. It took over 24 hours for a major crime scene unit to arrive. And that kind of floored me and, and really told me how remote this area is. There's some remote areas in the state of Minnesota, and the, the state police, the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension, if there was a major murder, even in the remote, most remote areas, I should say, of Minnesota, 
I would be surprised, and maybe I'm wrong, but I would be surprised if it took more than six hours to get a team to that site. So the fact that this took over four times as long, just, again, the, the vastness of the Canadian wilderness up here, the remote location, likely this team had to be flown in, and there's a lot of prep work and packing and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but they're going to get there 24 hours later, and they're going to issue a search warrant on the van. And a lot of people would question this, saying, why do you need a search warrant if you believe the van's occupants are, are deceased? Well, they, the police don't know this at the time, and I don't know if it was because if the van didn't have proper registration or what it was, but it didn't sound like they knew at the time who the van belonged to. And even if they did, they didn't. You know, Lucas was an Australian national, so even if his name was attached to the van, it's likely he didn't have you know a Canadian driver's license or anything to compare a photo to. And so they don't know that this van belongs to the murdered couple. I'm sure they assume it. But if they make that assumption and then get in that van and search and find something that it, it ends up being the suspect's vehicle, without that search warrant and without probable cause to get in there, it's it's just better that they get a search warrant. They had to wait anyway for the, the crime scene team to get there. So... Uh, they're going to get a search warrant, and it's, it's never wrong to get a search warrant because that just means anything you find, there's going to be less chance the defense is going to throw it out if, if it goes to trial. Uh, but uh, th when they get the search warrant, then they locate the identification in the van for both Lucas and China, and a search of the crime scene yielded both spent and unspent 7.62 millimeter cartridge cases with the head stamp 75 and 101. Now this information wasn't going to help locate the suspects, but it's valuable evidence if the shooters are located. It also tells investigators the ammunition was manu manufactured in 1975 at a location deemed 101. And I just did a little bit of research in this and I found that 101 possibly refers to China, which makes sense because 7.62 millimeter is a common a caliber for Soviet and communist bloc countries, uh, especially back in the Cold War times. So if they had factories cranking out the 7.62 millimeter ammunition in 1975, it wouldn't surprise me that if that 101 did match up to being ammunition from China. And again, this isn't going to, it's not like they're going to be able to go to the factory in China and say, hey, you know, who bought this, this ammo? Um, but it is going to eventually either link crime scenes or link a suspect if you come across them back to the crime scene. Now, the other thing that I found from this information is it said there was both spent and unspent cartridge cases. I've talked about this in the past, but usually crime scenes don't have unfired ammunition at them unless there's a issue with the rifle, some type of malfunction. It's, it's one of two things, either, I guess three things, either the ammunition was dropped, which can happen, but it's rare. It's what you see in the movies is a lot of the times for dramatic effect, for sound, for whatever it might be, uh, the shooter in a movie will often rack around and that's with a shotgun it's a pump of a shotgun with a gun it's sliding you know slide back and sending it forward a lot of people watch movies or tv shows and this works i mean either way but if there's a round ready to go in the chamber and most guns will hold a round in the chamber before you make this action it's going to extract a live round that's in the chamber without it have been fired so it either tells me that the weapons were loaded and there was a round in the chamber and because they watched too much TV or movies, before they fired a shot, they racked or charged or whatever terminology you want to use that weapon when there's already a round in the chamber, which caused an extraction of the live round. Or as I've talked about in the past, it's also the possibility that there's some type of a misfire that the weapon double did what's called the double feed. Uh, you can get 
stovepipe rounds where the round doesn't fully extract and gets stuck in the uh, the weapon's action. You can get just unfired rounds, ones that don't fire, and when the wep- the round doesn't fire, uh, there's not gas to cycle the semi-automatic function of the weapon, so the round stays in the chamber ready to fire, but nothing has gone down the barrel, so when you rack or charge the next round, it pulls out that live round that, that was a misfire. So there's there's a bunch of different things, but I'm, I'm going to lean, based on what I know on the next scene, I'm going to lean towards one one of the rifles at this point failed and somebody was trying to clear a malfunction and kept clearing live rounds out of that gun and that's why there's live rounds left behind but again everything at a crime scene can tell you something and if there's no live rounds there then you assume both guns work just fine you assume nobody had a live round in the chamber and racked it before nobody dropped any rounds but if there are live rounds there you have to ask why and like i said i i do just when i read this stuff because it makes me think there's more to what happened at this scene victim notifications were completed for both china in the u.s and lucas in australia lucas's father was a senior detective with the new south wales police force he and his wife flew to canada to return their son to australia the new south wales police force offered the help of two detectives to serve as liaisons with canada Investigators could not find a motive for the killings and at the time of the discovery had no viable suspects for the crimes. Their autopsies were conducted on July 19th and the findings revealed they were shot from multiple angles, possibly indicating they were executed. The same day the autopsies were being conducted, a car fire was reported near Deese Lake, British Columbia. First responders arrived and found an older Dodge Ram pickup that had been severely burned and almost all of the camper unit was missing by the time the fire was put out. The license plates were burned, but police were able to use them to identify an owner for the truck. It belonged to Cam McLeod. While officers were investigating the burned out truck, a highway worker stopped out at the scene and advised them that a body of an older male had just been found about two kilometers away from the arson scene. The initial report stated the cause of death for the male was unknown but he appeared to have injuries to his head and body, but only limited information was released to the public. Two separate murders had occurred in a remote area of northern Canada, and while the crime scenes were 7.5 hours apart, and the two murders appeared to be four days apart, investigators quickly started sharing information about their crime scenes to see if they could make any connections. It was not known at this time if there was any connection between the double homicide, the arson, or this newly discovered body. And I think this is something I give the investigators a lot of credit for. I'm guessing that homicides, especially what we're looking at here as a potential stranger homicide, are pretty rare in the northern parts of Canada. There's not a lot of people that live up in this remote area to begin with. So, again, I'm guessing that homicides that aren't domestic-related, that aren't you know, somehow easily linked to a suspect right away, that they're pretty rare. So when you're seeing geographically, 7.5 hours seems like a big uh, drive time, I guess, away. But in this remote part, this the, this 7.5 hours might be two or three towns away in, in just how remote this area is. So they're pretty quick to look and say look within four days we've got double homicide what we believe to be another homicide and this burned out truck and the burned out truck and this latest what we believe to be homicide are only two kilometers apart from each other so they're gonna at least get together and start to compare some notes to see if if these could be related and and ultimately if they're not it's not there's not really any damage done to the investigations but if they are they can start working together and the vehicle fire had been called in around 7 a.m on july 19th so the investigators had all day to start working the case they contacted the family of cam mcleod back in the vancouver area to see if they knew anything about cam and why his vehicle would be burned the investigators were advised that cam and briar had left on july 12th and were headed to the yukon area and that they were good kids and up there looking for work. 
The teens had shared that they had some vehicle troubles and were last heard from two days before on July 17th. With the limited information that they had at this time, investigators feared that Cam and Briar had met a similar fate to China and Lucas. There was nothing in their backgrounds to suggest they were responsible for these violent crimes, and so they were treated as missing and endangered. At the same time, investigators were assembling search teams for Cam and Briar. A crime scene started processing the crime scene where the single deceased male had been located. It was quickly determined that he was killed by a single gunshot wound and a fired cartridge case at the scene was a 7.62 millimeter stamped with 75 and 101. This was an extremely strong connection to the double homicide from a few, day pro few days prior. On July 20th, an officer checked the security footage at the only convenient shop in the nearby town of Dees Lake. A review of the footage showed Cam and Briar purchasing two pairs of gloves, some packaged donuts, and a coffee crisp candy bar. A check of various areas along the roadway south from Deast Lake to the scene of the burnt out truck and the latest victim revealed a Walmart ID belonging to Cam McLeod, the empty donut container, and a damaged SIM card for Cam McLeod's phone. Then just 500 meters from the burned out truck, a searcher located the candy bar wrapper, which was only another 1.5 kilometers to the homicide victim. On July 21st, police requested the public's help in locating Cam and Briar. So at this point, the investigators really don't know what the whole story is here. They're, they're understanding that Cam's burned out truck and the two homicides are all going to be related. However, at this point, they have to assume that Cam and Briar are potentially in danger that they may have come across the gunman that was responsible for the double homicide responsible for the the killing of this unknown male and that their truck was burned you know even potentially to cover things up and for all they know i mean this truck was pretty well burned cam and briar could have been in the truck when it was you know set on fire so they've got a they get a search warrant for cam's truck and though, although, though heavily damaged by the fire, a team of specially trained investigators sifted through the ashes and located several key items of evidence to include the remains of a metal ammunition container marked 1975-101 and burnt out cartridges with the marking 75-101. Also on that same day, a report of a sighting of the teens came into the RCMP in Meadow Lake, Saskatchewan. The report was from 7.30 a.m., and the investigators located security footage of the pair around 2 p.m. that day. It showed them traveling in a gray Toyota RAV4 SUV. Around the same time, an unnamed witness informed police that they believed the two teens were capable of acts of violence to include murder. This was not what police had been led to believe by the teens' family members, but the evidence was starting to suggest the teens were not in danger and may have ties to the three murders. A few hours later at 5 p.m., a woman named Helen Dyke called to state that the composite sketch looked a lot like her husband, Leonard Dyke. Leonard was a 64-year-old professor from the University of British Columbia where he lectured on botany. Helen stated Leonard had left home around July 16th for a regularly planned nature trip to observe grizzly bears. Helen stated that Leonard was in his silver Toyota RAV4 and would often sleep in the vehicle during his long trips. Checking their bank accounts, she saw he last filled up on gas on July 18th around 7.46 p.m. at a location around 27 kilometers away from where his body was found. Investigators now had evidence that Cam and Briar were not missing and endangered and were likely the suspects in the three murders. By the evening of July 22nd, one week after the murders of China and Lucas, the two teens were officially named as suspects in the murders and the manhunt was underway. That same day, a vehicle fire was reported in Gillum, Manitoba, and the vehicle was a Toyota RAV4. On July 23rd, an autopsy was conducted on Leonard, and he was found to have been killed by a single gunshot to the head. Officers investigating the vehicle fire realized it may be related to the now nationwide manhunt for Cam and Briar. The RCMP in Winnipeg sent more officers to the area of Gillum, and the public was warned that the teens may be in the area and are considered armed and dangerous. 
RCMP aircraft with infrared begins regular flyovers of the area trying to locate the teens. So this investigation has had several twists and turns, and unfortunately for investigators, they're kind of constantly playing catch-up in this case. Whenever they come across one of these burned-out vehicles or a crime scene, they're usually at least a day behind, and the remoteness of the area is both a blessing and a curse for the investigation. It's a blessing because it's much harder for the teens to hide their crimes or things like these vehicle fires. And if you lit a vehicle fire in a major city in the U.S., like Chicago or Dallas, New York, L.A., somewhere around there, it would probably take a while. And if a couple murders were linked over the course of a couple days in a major city, it probably wouldn't get the attention that these crimes did so it's working against the teens because all of these crimes are are getting linked and it's a major crime for this area but the remoteness and their ability to travel quite a far distance especially once they get a new vehicle means that investigators are working sometimes a province or two behind where these teens are, are operating when they're, they're committing these crimes. Now, on July 24th, ballistic tests on the bullets and casings recovered from the scene showed two guns were used to kill Lucas and China, and one of those guns was used to kill Leonard. The vehicle is positively ID'd as Leonard's vehicle, and a massive search effort begins. Hundreds of RCMP officers are sent to the area to assist in the search. In this Gillum, Manitoba area, it's, it's basically along a river that's is close to Hudson Bay. So they've made it all the way from the British uh, Columbian Rocky Mountains all the way over across northern Canada to Hudson Bay, which is why this is a 2,000-mile-long crime spree at this point. And so now they have this area around Gila, Manitoba, kind of locked down, but it is a very large and very remote area. And we mentioned early on that these boys were supposedly survivalists, that they spent a lot of time in the woods. These are not city kids that have you know never spent a night in the woods. Uh, they, they're used to this stuff. This is what they quote-unquote trained themselves for. And so officers are worried that this could turn into a, a long event or that these kids... At this point, they believe the kids might have stolen another vehicle and could be out of the area completely. They've done it once before. Maybe they just hadn't located you know, a deceased individual. It said they searched a whole bunch of homes at this time, too, because you have to worry either whether the homes could be abandoned and it makes a great place for somebody on the run to you know, break a window in the back or, or find an open door and then you're in a home and you have shelter and potentially food and maybe more weapons uh they could also force them their way into a home kill the owner and then set up shop inside this home or take a vehicle and again then they're on the run so they're they're hoping to keep these teenagers in this area and they're doing this massive search on July 26th, investigators conduct a search warrant on the teens' homes, looking for any evidence of pre-planning the crime spree or where they might go. However, nothing is found that indicates pre-planning motive or an endgame uh, for their crime spree. On July 27th, the Royal Canadian Air Force begins assisting in the search, and two days later, research or sorry, two days later, searchers locate several items belonging to the fugitives in the Sundance area. These items include several hundred rounds of ammunition, and the search intensifies around these located items. On August 1st, Cam's backpack is located with more ammunition, his ID, and his clothing. And on August 2nd, uh, it's, it's stated different ways. It, there's this rowboat that's found, or I don't know if it was a rowboat or if it was some type of a small motorboat, uh, but it's, it's found damaged along the river. And it's said that a river guide actually noticed like a blue sleeping bag that was caught up on the, on the riverbank. And everybody in this area knows, and this is going on 
over a week, uh, almost two weeks of searching in this area, that these two teens are possibly in the area, that they're armed and dangerous. So this river guide's going to notify the RCMP that he sees this blue sleeping bag in the water. And near this blue sleeping bag, they find this damaged boat. And it's said in some of the research that the, they don't believe the boat ultimately was linked to these boys but then in other research it says they believe the boat the boys tried to take the boat down the river towards Hudson Bay but this river is really rock filled and rapid filled and so they think it's possible the boys stole this boat with the idea of getting into Hudson Bay uh, via the river and they loaded up the boat with some of their gear and then as a part of either hitting a rock or the rapids, the boat may have either capsized or at least got damaged enough where they abandoned that idea. But some of their stuff may have ended up in the river, which is how the sleeping bag ended up in the river. And they would actually dive, I think, on August 4th in the river around the area the boy, this boat was found, thinking that the boys may have drowned as an attempt to take this boat down the river, but they don't find anything during this dive. And that's when it said afterwards they didn't believe the boat was linked. But again, in other other stories I read, people strongly believe that this boat was used by the boys as an attempt to get to Hudson Bay um, as the later state in a video that's found. And then on August 7th, three weeks after the first murders and two weeks into the manhunt, two bodies are located about eight kilometers away from the burned out RAV4. The bodies are identified as Cam and Briar. Two SKS-style rifles are located by the bodies, along with two fired cartridge cases. It appears the teens entered into a suicide pact, and Cam shot Briar before turning the gun on himself. A camera belonging to the third homicide victim was found with the bodies. Six videos and three photos were found on the camera. The videos were deemed to be too dangerous to release, as the RCMP felt someone may be inspired by the actions taken by Cam and Briar and used the videos as motivation to conduct copycat crimes. However, they did list a summary of the videos in their final report. It stated the first video is roughly a minute long and shows both the boys in the video. They claim responsibility for the murders and state they're going to march to Hudson Bay and hijack a boat and sail to Europe or Africa. And as I mentioned, whether it be the damaged boat or just the proximity, they're actually not that far from Hudson Bay. Uh, I couldn't get an exact distance because the area that the all of this is going on or the bodies are recovered and that kind of stuff is open to interpretation depending on how you read the distance. But it was something about this was roughly, I want to say, 63 kilometers away from Gillum. And I don't know from this area, it didn't appear by the map that it would be that far to the actual open waters of Hudson Bay. So it's it's very possible that this was part of their plan was to get as close to Hudson Bay as possible and which makes me question why they destroyed the RAV4. Either it was having mechanical issues or they got where they thought they were close enough to Hudson Bay to throw off the law enforcement tracks, I guess. Um, but the fact that they're they're claiming they want to hijack a boat and sail to Europe or Africa makes me believe their their end game is to get to Hudson Bay, and they're very close at this point. Now the second video shows that they had reached the river, and they on the video they say the river's too fast and big, and they abandon their plan and state they may have to commit suicide. They again take credit for the three murders and state they have no remorse. The third video is only 30 seconds long and the two of them have shaved at this point and stated their intention to return to civilization and kill more people and they expect to be dead in a week. The fourth video is 19 seconds long and in it they tell people they're going to shoot themselves. The fifth video is only six seconds long and appears it was an unintentional uh, recording. And the final video is 31 seconds long. In it they give their last will and testament and request to be cremated. Now it said no accurate time or date information was obtained by the metadata from the camera, so investigators don't know how long it was between videos and what day time the last video was taken. So digital files, whether you take a photo or a video, the camera itself 
inside of of that or on a especially more on a phone nowadays since we see more stuff taken on phones there's that file has a ton of information about if the phone has gps it's where the photo was taken when um, conditions the photo was taken in i mean there's a ton of information stored in there so i'm kind of at a loss maybe this was an older digital camera belonging to leonard that didn't have these capabilities maybe when they they formatted the camera to some degree because it was only their six videos and three photos that were on the camera and maybe when they did that they reset the date and time on the internal workings of the camera so it was set to some arbitrary date and so it's investigators can't determine because it could be you know three days from whatever the arbitrary date is but if you don't know which day that that camera was reset to that arbitrary date it's you're not going to be able to figure out anything past that point and this had to have been frustrating for investigators because i'm sure they wanted to know what day the boys actually killed themselves how long they'd been searching this area before uh, the boys took their own lives uh, but they're not going to get that information unfortunately from the video at least according to the final report the two rifles found with the teens were identified as the one purchased from Cabela's at the beginning of their trip and an older style SKS that appears to be put together with parts from various rifles. And this is what also makes me think, and I, this is before I even found out that there was an older kind of junkier SKS uh, that made me think that at the, the murders of Lucas in China that this older SKS might have malfunctioned and that's why we have the live rounds there and that's why only one gun was used to kill Leonard and then one gun was used to in the suicide pact at the end so my guess is that they this older SKS had some type of major malfunction to it and they stopped using it at that point but uh, so I could be wrong and just what I get from the reading now, while investigators have no motives in the killings of China and Lucas, they do feel the teens started having vehicle issues with Cam's truck, and instead of continuing into the Yukon, where it would be more remote and they'd have a better chance of being abandoned, they turned around and headed south. They burned the truck to destroy evidence and came across Leonard and his RAV4. They killed him to obtain new transportation and then drove east, possibly trying to get to Hudson Bay but they either had some type of vehicle or financial issues that stopped them in Gillum. Or, as I said, they just, that's as far as they wanted to get. That was where their plan got them, and they were going to take to the river, and then that plan failed. But some people still believe the teens took the boat and tried to navigate the rapid-filled river, and when the boat crashed, they headed to shore and eventually committed suicide before they could be caught. And it's likely that they heard the air, ground, and river searches and felt the net closing in. And we've talked about this in the past. Whether it be an active shooter situation or a lot of these types of situations, the last thing these guys want to do is get caught. They don't want to face punishment or judgment for what they've done. Uh, they just want this to be over. So as the net closes in, they're going to realize there's a good chance they're going to get caught. And they had mentioned going in back in and killing people but that comes with the risk of getting caught and so my guess is again that they they hit out long enough until they realized they couldn't make it to Hudson Bay that the net was closing in and that's when they decided to commit suicide no motive for the entire trip was ever found via friends family or a search of their houses now what I don't understand is the actual lock, lack of possible crimes committed by the suspects and when I say this, I mean, they've already committed murder, so they've committed the worst of the crimes. So if they had financial issues, why they didn't rob a bank or a gas station or at least make an attempt to, to get more cash, I don't know why they didn't commit some type of a home invasion robbery to hide out. And hopefully they could escape the manhunt that way. Uh, it, it seemed like they didn't have a problem, obviously, killing somebody to fit their needs, so the fact that they, and I don't mean to say only killed three people because it's three terrible deaths that should have never happened, but the, the crime totals, the number of crimes and the number of deaths could have been way higher in this case, and for some reason it wasn't, and I, I guess I don't know if 
you know, Cam had some moral compass to him that was keeping them from doing this, if or Briar did, or they both did. I just, it just seems really strange that they committed these terrible crimes and then in the span of the entire crime spree didn't commit more. Now, ultimately, the crime spree cost two young people and one person their golden years, their lives, and we will never really understand why. The two cowards ended their own lives before anyone could get justice or any answers, and while the world is a safer place with them gone, not much can be learned about why this happened or how it could have been prevented. And that was a big part of the report, was looking into were there pre-warning signs before these boys went and did this crime spree, and there really wasn't. And the family stands by the fact these were good boys that they just don't understand. Now, Briar had his issues, they had said, and he was you know, de possibly depressed, and he was obsessed with this Nazi stuff, and and maybe he had a, a desire to, to become famous and go out in a blaze of glory, but from everybody that they talked to, Cam didn't. So... You know, we really, again, don't know why. It wasn't like these kids were posting videos on Facebook talking about how they're going to go on this killing spree. It wasn't like that. You know, they found a hit list in the kids' rooms or plans, or it wasn't like they didn't take to Facebook and make a bunch of cryptic messages on Facebook about what they were going to do or they're going to be famous. So in reality, it's one of those really rare circumstances where we have these horrible crimes committed and we really don't know why uh, we believe we know why with leonard because they needed the car but we really don't know china and lucas just make no sense they they didn't appear to be targets that they couldn't get a vehicle off of them they didn't need a vehicle at that time uh, they didn't have as far as we know a lot of cash on them maybe they did and that wasn't reported but i just can't imagine seeing a you know 1986 conversion van and two young people in it and thinking wow that's you know we're going to score a lot of money if we kill them and and search through their van or take something off of them so to me it, it just seems like that was almost just it's remote and there's this couple and we can kill them and and they decided to do it but again we will never know but uh, that's it for the case of the northern canada's killing spree of 2019 uh, thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. And you can also find me at True Blue Crime Productions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at True Blue Crime Productions. That's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.